Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. In this era of inflation, hard assets are a way to prevent falling behind. That's where real estate comes into play. Multifamily in particular is a great inflation hedge because you can raise rents every year, except in cities with rent control. Today's guest, Tracy Hubbard, managing partner of Hubbard Capital Group, had been in the financial world for many years before identifying multifamily as a way to generate aggressive returns with a built-in hedge against inflation. On today's show, we have with us a gentleman who has done a lot of different things uh, outside of real estate, in addition to real estate that I find fascinating. You know, foreign exchange trader for over two decades. He's also in different kinds of asset classes that I and I think a lot of my listeners are not uh, exposed to around vineyards syndications with vineyards and just really interesting stuff. So I've been so excited to to talk to Tracy Hubbard. He is the managing partner of Hubbard Capital Group. So Tracy, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you, Roger. I really appreciate you having me as a guest. Everything that, that I know about you is just like, wow, interesting kind of guy, varied background. And so I know you're in the Lone Star State. And is that where you started out in life as well? And if so, where where in the Lone Star State? Well, yeah, I guess you could say I started out here. I'm a sixth generation Texan. So we started out here back in the early 1800s. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. And I was uh, born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Fort Worth specifically. Right now, I'm about probably 90 miles northwest of Fort Worth on a ranch. So um, sort of getting back to my country roots, I guess, is what you might say. So, Okay, so you guys were there in the early 1800s. And so, okay, did your family come from the East Coast out there? And why did they come or do you even know? Yes, and it's basically, you know, going to settle the new, the new area and stuff. So uh, my great-grandfather arrived in Texas in 1835. And uh, yeah, they came from uh, um, Salem. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So they came from the East. And then um, throughout the generations, and mainly in Central Texas, um, if anybody knows anything about Texas, it's uh, more like down in the Brownwood area of Texas, pretty, pretty dead center almost of the state. And why did they go to Texas? Uh, new opportunities just basically new opportunities because it was obviously the wild wild west still back then it was before right before texas became you know a republic of its own uh from mexico that happened in 1836 so it was uh new opportunities i guess is what you might say i weirdly for you know since i was like in my i think even late 20s but certainly early 30s i'm a guy that reads the obits in the paper every day strange guy. I know I am, but I'm always interested and, and I'm in California. I'm always interested when somebody's like a fifth or sixth generation Californian only because, you know, it speaks to history. I guess I'm fascinated with history. That's what it is. And so I don't, you know, so I, when I hear somebody say they're sixth generation Texan, you've got to be uh, among the proud, incredibly few. Yep. Yeah. And that's something you always tell about Texan. <laughs> I just can't tell him much. You can always tell a Texan, though. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, it's a it's a history. You know, my wife, interesting, you know, you're from California. My wife would love to move there. But I said, I'll take you out there and visit as long as you want. But we're not leaving the state. So <laughs> that's just part of it. It's not going to happen. I understand the sentiment. So I think you went to Texas A&M for college. And so like, what, what did you do after school? And how did you ultimately get into the uh, into the real estate world? Yeah, well, to make a somewhat of a long story short, I uh, was at A&M and decided I wanted to fly. I was majoring in architecture at the time, but decided I wanted to fly. My my dad's an aeronautical engineer and got lots of background with aircraft, so I wanted to fly. So I joined, I dropped out of college and joined the Marine Corps. They had a program to um, help you go through the, you know, flight school and do all the different, and go from enlisted to commissioned officer. So I signed up for that. Uh, without going to a lot of gory details, it's right after the Vietnam War. Things changed and did not end up doing that, but basically set up my enlistment. Uh, learned a lot. It was a great experience. One of the best things that helped form who I am in life. And uh, But after the Marine Corps, I got out in uh, 82 and then sort of went to work for a, a logistics company, uh, ended up buying. Uh, it was a warehousing distribution logistics company. Bought that company in 87. And uh, that was sort of my first foray into business ownership and was uh, pretty much an entrepreneur after that. From that point there, all the way through my business career, I've owned six different companies uh, operating businesses. And then uh, in 1998, I... Um, went bankrupt. <laughs> One of the companies I had, um, manufacturing company, it didn't work out. I made some bad decisions. It cost me everything we had. So I got to start over in life at 42 years of age with four young children trying to figure out what I was going to do. So at that point in time, I started looking at the markets, the financial markets, and starting learning how to trade the markets. Now, you got to understand this is also back in the infancy stages of the Internet. So it wasn't like you could click, you know, on a button and buy and sell stuff like you can nowadays. So it was a little bit different uh, back then. But I started off trading commodities uh, mainly is what I started tr- uh, cutting my teeth on. Uh, learned some hard lessons, went through 911 uh, on the markets, uh, you know, when when that happened. And that was a very scary time to be in the markets. Uh, after that, I moved over from commodities, moved over into currencies in 2001 and two, and started learning how to trade the currency market. Uh, Forex is what that is, you know, basically the dollar against all the other major currencies of the world, the pound, the euro, Aussie, Japanese yen, uh, all those things. So, did that for a while and uh, quite a while and uh, ran a couple of small hedge funds of my own and did very well at it. Did very well. Now, the market started changing, obviously, 2008. Uh, we all remember that if you're old enough. And the market's changed. It was a little bit tougher to make the same money. Things I could see is just a smoke and a lot of it's smoke and mirrors game in, in a pretty manipulated. So I started moving out of the financial markets into real estate in 2015. I want to get out in the, out of the uh, equities and soft markets more than what I call hard assets. You know, real estate being the greatest hard asset there is out there. Uh, something you touch and feel, put your hands on. Uh, that's definitely uh, you know a fight against inflationary times we have coming. So that's sort of what happened. 2015 is when I started moving over and settled in on multifamily uh, specifically. In well, 2016 is when I started really looking to do uh, apartment complexes syndications. You know, it's so fascinating and it's, you know, this is a real estate podcast and I'm oriented towards real estate myself, obviously. And and so I am not a hundred percent impartial, but what's so interesting is that you have such a wide range of experience. And so you have a frame of reference that landed you into multifamily, you know, which is just, um, 
So interesting. I mean, um, you know, BlackRock got into, you know, I think real estate is their biggest, the biggest category that they're in now. And it was, I mean, as brilliant as, you know, every decision and is made by committees of Ivy League MBAs whenever they acquire something. But as simple as it is, you know, the leader of BlackRock at that time, you know, steered them towards basically real estate because of exactly what you just said is just hard assets you could touch and feel, which is such a simple, simple, simple thing, but in relatively conservative. Just out of curiosity, those companies that you ran, did you acquire all of those or, or did you start some of them? Um, I acquired uh, the majority of them, yes. Majority of them I acquired, and much like, you know, real estate from the standpoint, I saw an undervalued asset being underutilized and uh, would go in there and buy it and build it up and didn't set out to do that thing with every one of them. But then it usually ends up buying and selling the business too after about four or five years. That was sort of the how it sort of morphed into itself. <laughs> it wasn't the plan originally. You know, you buy a company, I think, oh, yeah, someday I'll turn this over to my son to run. Well, that didn't happen on any of them. So, you know, we, we plan, God laughs. So that's what happened. But that's, uh, yeah, they're all bought. You, you are a, an entrepreneurial guy, man. I bought a business, failed quickly and miserably. Actually, I didn't fail quickly, but I did fail miserably. You know, it's enough to say, God, I don't know if I, I, I'm going to ever try that again, just because it's like you, you don't know what you don't know. So for a guy like you that's gone out and acquired businesses and had some success, I'm like, that's super, super impressive. And then the fact that, you know, you, you learned how to trade currencies, I'm like, wow. So smart guy, obviously. When you had your hedge fund, so were you basically investing in public companies with your own money? Because you said it was your own hedge fund. Like what, what exactly was that and what kind of companies? Yeah, and it was, uh, and I say my own hedge fund, it means I started the fund, but I did trade other people's money uh, when I was doing that along with my own. And it was, um, and, but I did not really trade equities. Now, some of the, my own personal money I'd put into equities, which were, you know, stocks and stuff, but everything I traded on my fund were commodity-based or, you know, like gas and oil and gold, silver, all those commodities, and then the currencies. But then that was a, a fund. And it was, and I call it a hedge fund. It's just a term that people would recognize. It's really more like a boutique private, little private equity fund is what it was, is what we put together. It wasn't, wasn't huge, but uh, it did, we did very well with it. So I see. Got it. And so in 16, you get into multifamily at the risk of being redundant. What is it that you like about that asset class? Now, you know, we're heading into 2022 now, some, you know, maybe your perspective has been enhanced or changed or whatever. What is it that you love about that asset class compared to everything else you've done? Right. So let me sort of tell you my perspective. You know, um, the reason I like the financial markets was uh, what I traded. I could go to cash, you know, at the click of a mouse, essentially, and be in cash if something looks strange. Well, it's because it's very, very, very liquid. Now, obviously, we all know real estate is not that liquid. So if things start to happen, if or if you need cash and you want to go to cash, you can't really do it. So that was the reason I really invested in a lot of real estate up to that point. But when it became hard to make a return on my money, harder and harder to make a return on my money, I said, what good is it to be able to go to cash if you can't get a return? So that's when I went back to the hard asset. And I, and I saw what's coming down the road as far as inflationary times and the Fed and what they've been doing. I said, well, protect ourselves. I don't care if they're not that liquid or not. I need to get into hard assets. So that's when I started looking at the different types of real estate. And I knew something about industrial warehousing real estate, but I didn't know anything about the other 
uh, avenues. So I looked into, you know, small commercial retail, didn't like that. Single family rentals, didn't really like that. When I say didn't like them, they're all good investments, but they weren't scalable as far as how big could I get with them. And that's how I settled in on multifamily because it was so scalable uh, from the perspective uh, you know, syndicating them and they're large enough to where you can get, you know, you don't have to have a, a massive piece of something to do very well. And so that's why I settled in on, on the multifamily aspect of it. And it was a it was a hot market, you know, coming back into a hot market back in 2015 to 16. Why was it getting harder to get a return on what you were doing in the financial markets? Because, well, here's okay. a quick lesson on currencies. Uh, currency rates, uh, if, you, if you think about a currency, think of uh, the stock of a country. The U.S. dollar represents America's health and wealth. Uh, the same thing the euro does represents European countries or Japanese yen uh, represents, you know, Japan as far as their economies. Now, what drives the value of a currency? Well, they're all driven by their interest rates, you know, like our Fed rate. Uh, and they all have them, and but that's what drives the currency rate. The higher the interest rate, you know, the more valuable everybody wants to own that currency because it pays a better dividend, you might think. Well, when you trade currencies, you're trading interest rate differentials is essentially what you're doing. What that does, that's what makes one value, one currency go up or down against the other is in interest rates. And they don't move real fast. But when you start having all the federal or the uh, federal banks of the country start lowering your interest rates while I had to save their economy, you don't have those interest rate differentials anymore. I mean, Japan's been sitting at zero interest rates for over 20 years, uh, and all the others essentially have made a race to the bottom, just like the euro. It's pretty much negative interest rates, essentially, and that's pretty much where we're at. So when everybody's racing to the bottom, you don't have any kind of volatility to be able to make money off the differences of those. So that's that's what started happening. It became just very difficult to make consistent money over time. And it wasn't as predictable because it's just a lot of knee-jerk reaction kind of things uh, is what's going on in the economy. So that that was it. So where do you go after that? Well, you better start protecting yourself you know, against the inflation that's coming. So that's, that's essentially what moved me over to the hard assets at that point. Then from your historical perspective, looking out over the next, you know, I don't know, 12, 36 months, 60 months. What do you see with interest rates, you know, in the U.S. and inflation? Well, I think inflation is going up and I don't think interest rates are going up anytime soon. But here, because the Fed's backed themselves into a corner. Here's the thing about it. Anybody that makes market predictions, it's it's an opinion. They have no, nobody has any idea where the markets are going. I don't have any idea. Uh, you can only, you know, look at the past and see what's happened. But when you start having manipulations of, of currents, of the interest rates and the markets in general, and I don't want to, you know, we could spend another two days talking about that. You, you just have to be careful as far as where you can go, what you can do with it. I'm not um, real keen on making market predictions other than, you know, you can just see the handwriting on the wall and I don't know when it's going to happen, but I just want to be prepared for it, I guess is all I would say. It's just, you got to be prepared for it. But yeah, at some point in time, the, uh, the uh, party will be over and um, a lot of people are going to be left holding the bag because when it corrects, it's going to be ugly. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know when uh, it does, I'll be holding our hard assets and they'll, they'll be going up in value. I see. <laughs> I, I got it. I got it. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. 
Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So in 16, got into multifamily and in like, how, how did you approach that? Where is it? Was it all that? Yeah, I started off, I bought a brownstone in Chicago, seven, you know, unit walk up true brownstone and uh, realized... <laughs> part of the way through that project, okay, I couldn't scale it because, you know, I put a lot of money into it and, okay, I've got one, now where do I go? Uh, and that's sort of, but that, yeah, but truly it was a true multifamily, just wasn't big enough. So then I started trying to figure out how, how can I get bigger? And I, I didn't know a lot about syndications, but I heard about them. So I started researching a little bit and figured out, okay, I need to get an apartment complex, you know, that's a hundred units, not just seven. And though I won't be able to own the whole thing, and I knew something about you know, investing in other people's money because of my uh, trading background. So I said, I can do this and I can syndicate deals and become, you know, the general partner and own a large percentage of it, but don't have to own the whole thing. That's something else I had to overcome just personally. It's all my other companies, you know, I'd owned a hundred percent with my wife, but we, you know, we own the whole thing. So it wasn't, I didn't have a lot of partners. So obviously getting into that size real estate, I knew I was going to need partners in a team. So I had to get, get that put together and be comfortable with who I was working with as far as partners and stuff like that. But that's that's essentially how I worked in my way into the larger multifamily uh, properties was through syndication. How did you, from Texas, how did you wind up with a seven-unit brownstone in Chicago? <laughs> Seminar, webinars, and uh, how, had a guy that was doing stuff up there that lived near the area. So he and I partnered up on a deal up there, just the two of us. So uh, that's how I ended up there. I wouldn't have gone out to settle. You know, it's looking back, Chicago's not the place you want to be investing in multifamily. So that was a lesson learned, you know, but that's just sort of how it ended up. I didn't plan to say, I'm going to go to Chicago and buy a brownstone. That's just how it worked out. And, you know, it got uh, wet my whistle and, you know, got my feet wet, but that's pretty much it. That was it. All right. So then, so what was the first hundred plus unit deal that you did? And did you do another webinar or uh, get a mentor? And, you know, what was yeah, that, that yeah. process? Yeah. Interesting. So uh, started looking for multifamily, you know, all over the state of Texas, because, you know, obviously Texas is a hot multifamily market. Uh, was looking at a deal up in Amarillo and uh, called from a broker and said, hey, I got a deal down in Lubbock, Texas, uh, if you'd be interested in that. So drove down there and looked at it. Long story there. It went in and out of contract with someone else, fell out of contract. They called us back. Hey, we're still interested. And then uh, we went to, uh, you know, went into contract on it and uh, got the deal done. That was in 2000. Uh, see the other one? That was 2018. Finally got it closed in 2019. And uh, that was a portfolio property, uh, two properties. There's 173 doors between two properties. So that was my first foray into it. And it was in Lubbock. There again, didn't set out to go to that town to do it. But that's sort of where it worked out, you know, sort of interesting on the markets. You know, you have your big markets like Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, uh, Austin. And then you also have what we call the, you know, the tertiary markets that are not as big. You could find better deals there a few years ago where the cap rates aren't quite as compressed. 
and find a little bit better opportunities there. So that's sort of how it started off. And then sort of funny how that worked. Uh, and I got a mentor on that deal because I couldn't have done that deal myself. So I got a mentorship uh, through a program and the guy partnered with me on it. And I don't mind telling you who it is, Mark Kinney uh, with Think Multifamily is who it is. We got that one done and then it's sort of funny, you know, once you get a deal done, then you start having people bringing deals to you. You don't have to look near as hard. So I had another deal up there in Lubbock purchase. So right now we're sitting at just uh, under 500 doors up there in that town. So it's it's been very good to us. Fantastic. How many people live in Lubbock and what do you like about it? Yeah. So there again, it is a tertiary market, but it's a, it's a pretty good size one. Uh, the Lubbock property is about 250,000. But if you look at the MSA, you know, it gets up to 600,000 because it expands out quite a bit. And it's close enough over the Texas, New Mexico border. You get a lot of traffic out of New Mexico coming into. Uh, it's a college town. Texas Tech is there. So lots of good industry and um, a good working class uh you know, property, you know, class C, class B properties. So, uh, and not a lot of new stuff in the pipeline, in it, but it's growing quite a bit rapidly. Uh, rents are on, on the move up there like they are everywhere. But, you know, even though it's not the major market still going up, um, we're able to get value for our, our dollar up there. And they've also started moving in stuff like an Amazon distribution plant. And then they just got a new, I don't know how many billions of dollars, but it's going to be the world's largest mozzarella producers putting a, 258 acre plant up there, uh, like I say, over th- over $3 billion worth, uh, you know, a mozzarella plant in Lubbock, Texas, believe it or not. 600 jobs, you know, coming in. You know, it's an exciting thing. There again, didn't set out that way to go to Lubbock, but that's where I ended up. And it works out pretty well because it's pretty much in close driving distance for me to go visit them quite a bit. You know what? I've been doing this podcast for uh, over like, uh, over a year, about a year and a half. And I've talked to so many people in Texas and talked to other people that are all over the country, but investing in Texas. And the theme here is that, you know, it almost doesn't matter where you go in Texas. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not necessarily. Really doesn't matter where you go. It's just growing like crazy in towns that, you know, for Lubbock being a great example, you might have turned your nose up at 15, 20, certainly 30 years ago, like, oh my God, you know, I I couldn't find it on a map. Or all of a sudden, when you talk about a 600,000 person MSA, I mean, that's, that's, that's a market. I mean, that's a population. You got a lot of renters and it seems like it's all growing with companies moving there. And so it just seems like you're in, no matter where you go, you're in the path of progress. Yeah, really is. It's really exciting to be a part of it. You know, sort of, and we just had some appraisals done on some properties I bought for a loan extension. And so they wanted to reappraise it. And we're already past our th- third year projection as far as values go. And we just now barely owned it two years. So uh, from that perspective, it's uh, outperformed. But then but there again, you know, and that's not just the Lubbock market. That's pretty much every market in Texas is doing that or every, everywhere. And that's a good and bad thing, right? It's good because I already own something up there. But I'm telling you, it's making it pretty tough to find something to buy. So right. Exactly. It's, it's, you know, everything's going up. Well, it's like everything in the supply chain. You know, you had these, uh, I've got a truck that everybody loves and it's a 2016 model and I love it. It's broken into me and people keep offering me a lot of money for it. I thought, well, that's great, but then I have to go out there and replace it and everything else is so expensive, even the used ones or new ones. So it's the same problem everywhere. You know, you have great value in real estate. What makes it tough to buy? You know, it's a seller's market. How are you managing these properties? I'm the asset manager, but I have a third-party uh, property management company, but I am the asset manager on all of them. 
because we're doing a lot of, uh, you know, rehabs and, uh, you know, value add to them. So you bought it, I think you said in 18 or 19, the first building. Uh, well, it took us about a year to get it under contract, but closed it in 2019 on the first two. Okay. And so it's been a couple of years. And so you, so are you still using the same third-party management company that you brought on in 2019? No, we switched out the ones that uh, originally we switched them out in January of this year. Tell me about that story. The other company just wasn't performing. You know, you, you're in the middle of rehab and trying to get stuff done and getting it leased up and, and they just weren't, weren't doing their job. So, you know, we had to pull the trigger and switch it out and um, got a different company in there and there we go. We're off the races. It's been doing good. Then, then of course, you get COVID during the middle of all that. So you just deal with all these different things. And then uh, you keep uh, keep trying to make some headway and keep at least keep moving forward in the same direction. I'm laughing just because I'm thinking, here's a guy that's, you know, that bought six companies or close to six companies. Maybe you started a couple, what happened. But here's a guy that's been around the block a number of times. And, and here he is in this situation. I'm like, this guy's my hero. So here's my question. You say that, you know, they just weren't performing. What are, what are the specifics? Well, they really weren't, these weren't getting, tra- they weren't getting traffic in there and they weren't getting it leased up. The, the, when we bought it, you know, you get a little bit of a drop anyway in occupancy, but it dropped and never, never was crawling. You know, we got below close to and below 50% occupancy and it just, they never could get momentum going to get anything done. So had to make a change. Because I know I know what the market is up there, and there's no reason we shouldn't be, you know, going up, going and getting uh, occupancy up. So it wasn't a market problem; it was a, you know, management problem. Not to pick at a scab, but then again, I guess that's what I'm doing. Is why were they unable to do that? Were they too small? Did were they not? Did they not have experience in this specific sub market or asset class, or what was the? What do you think was the the problem? Well, I think probably the problem was the regionals um, went through a couple of different regional managers. So it's probably internal stuff on the property management company side as far as uh, getting that done. And then and then and because of that, you know, managing the personnel on site because the regionals were switching out quite regularly. So I don't know how much support the property manager was getting, but then it's not my job to step in there and do their job. So, you know, it's one of these things, OK, we need to get it done or we're moving on down the road. So. They just didn't get, it, didn't get it done, you know. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. And it's like you could get them in the contract, you could buy them, but it's you know like anything else. It's, it's about the execution. Was that company not based in Lubbock? Were they based somewhere else and they just had a regional handle that, that market and those properties? Correct. Yeah, and they really didn't have that many properties in Lubbock either. That was another problem and that is a problem you know you mentioned that that's something you got to really consider and look at when you're looking at these tertiary markets is who are the pms in the town and if you're going to bring in a bigger company maybe it's a statewide company or a national company do they already have a market presence in that town Uh, because if they don't they're not going to have the resources that you may need whether it's from vendors or just personnel uh, to be able to to attack the problem because in those in those towns you know i say smaller towns i mean it's not that small but you you really, the personnel issues are even greater. And the same thing with vendors. You know, you think it's tough to find a vendor or whatever in the big cities or, or get people employed. It's even worse in the smaller ones. So the great ones are really working somewhere else. They're not out looking for a job most of the time. They're already employed somewhere. So how has it been with the new management company? It's been very good. You know, we've had some, you know, 
it's stalled out for a little while, maybe a month or so, but we're, we've been making great progress. We're, we're getting very close to having them totally stabilized. So it's been a, a great turnaround, I think. And it's been less than a year uh, since we put them in there. And they've also, um, and I bought another, closed on another property in March of this year. Uh, they came in initially also on that one to uh, manage that property for me. And are they based in Lubbock or? No, they're based out of Austin. Uh, they're called Capstone Property. Yeah. Did they have a presence in, in Lubbock prior to working with you? Yes, they did. Yes. I see. Interesting. And are you developing a sense for, you know, as you look down the road here, you know, given cap rate compression, you know, kind of across the board, as we were discussing earlier, do you have a view as to an asset class uh, as you continue to scale up and or other markets? Yeah. And I, and, um, well, the asset class I definitely want to stay in is probably the B's and the C's. I'd probably like to get a little more B's. And as we say that, you know, you start getting into the class A's that are, uh, you know, it, there's not quite as old class A, maybe start buying stuff that was in the mid two thousands instead of, you know, the mid eighties and nineties. I'll look at anything, you know, I'll look at a class A property. It doesn't matter to me if the returns there. I really don't care from that perspective, but uh, that's sort of the plan. And as far as the cities I go to, I will go to any city also, uh, but I'm not seeing a lot of deals in, say, the Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston's. And I'm not saying there's not stuff being bought and sold out there. There is. I think, uh, well, I don't know what they're putting out there. I haven't seen a lot of the underwriting on them, but I think a lot of people are sort of fudging some numbers, you know, on what they think they're going to be worth in a while. Um, I think it's harder to get the return for your investors. Investors are used to, you know, the standard, okay, we want a 10, 10% cash on cash. And, you know, we're going to 2X our money in five years with an IRR definitely over 15 and, and those kind of things. And, and, you know, that was, you know, doable for the last five years. It's getting tougher and tougher now. So if people are buying stuff and still touting that, I'd like to see their underwriting because, as you know, you can make a spreadsheet, say whatever you want it to say, you know, so maybe you buy something at a, at a five cap and then and you project in three years, it's going to be at a three and a half or four cap. Well, you don't know that. So you're banking on the market, keep going up with the compression cap rates. Well, what if they don't? What if they go the other direction? And, and I don't know if they are, but you better underwrite it conservatively in case they do. So we always underwrite our stuff with cap rates going up, you know, so you're not, you're not going to get the compression. So the automatic you know, bump in the prices. So that's what I see. So I think people got to be very careful whether where they're buying and, and what, what they're paying for stuff. Now, I've had a saying, and it goes just about in any kind of business you're looking at, appreciation will cover a lot of sin. <laughs> so, you know, you could have screwed up a couple of years ago and overpaid for something, but the way the market's going right now, it's probably gone up in value. Why? Because you got in the market. And, you know, it's everything's going up and everybody looks like a hero, but that doesn't mean it's going to keep doing that. So I think maybe it was Warren Buffett said, you know, you know, who's not wearing a swimsuit when the tide goes out? Well, when the tide goes out and the market rolls, then you're going to find out who really overpaid for their properties. Yeah. Words of wisdom. And, you know, it's just a matter of when. You're right. I hear you. I'm, I'm uh, a little suspect. It, it's been feeling late cycle for a long time. Just to, so out of curiosity, you know, being a guy that uh, got in in the last couple of years, how did like like when you got into contract on any of your properties, what have you learned around, you know, sellers numbers and brokers numbers compared to, you know, what you ultimately ended up getting? What have you learned there? Most sellers are not too realistic. You know, it's like everything. 
you ever buy or sell, you know, you have something, whether it's, you know, a watch or piece of jewelry you, you have your, or even your house, you have in your mind what you think it's worth. Well, if you really want to know what something's worth, try to sell it. So, <laughs> you'll find out. Oh, well, gosh, that, that diamond I paid ten grand for is, you know, I only get $2,500. Well, yeah, that's what happens in life sometimes. So uh, you got to figure out what is the true value of something is what someone will pay for it. But it's not a um, not something that you always want to uh, guarantee on, but they are prices are what they are. And uh, I'm just going to be conservative and, and wait and be have some dry powder, as they say, when the market rolls over, because I don't think a lot, a lot of people have seen market cycles and whether it's a, in the financial markets or the real estate market. You know, I'll be 65 this month. And so I've seen a lot of market cycles and different kinds of things. So people go around thinking, oh, it's just going up, it's just going up. Yeah, until it doesn't. <laughs> That's I had a conversation over the weekend with a real estate guy. But he's doing a lot of crypto and everybody's, you know, everybody thinks they're geniuses right now because everything's just going up. Well, until it doesn't. And so I'm going, yeah, I'd keep short accounts on that and make sure I get some of that back out in cash. You don't want to ride it all the way up and then ride it all the way back down. So that goes to the real estate stuff, too. I was just kind of thinking this, you know, stream of consciousness, you know, um, you know, in California, we're big on stream of consciousness. I don't know if you knew that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually from Ohio. (laughs) I'm glad you found that humorous. No, anyway, you know, I'm daydreaming, right? Just as we do, right? You think about stuff all the time. I can't shut my brain off. Anyways, I was just thinking like, you know, that they say that you, you know, when you're buying real estate, you know, you really want to invest with somebody, a sponsor that was through 08, 09. And and I was just thinking to myself that, you know what, I understand that. But, you know, inevitably, there's a lot of people that went through 08, 09 that just have short memories and, uh, you know, think uh, and really didn't learn just because it was, was, you know, already it's almost 15 years ago and could probably be just as, you know, unrealistically bullish is somebody that's a younger kid compared to you or me that wasn't through 0809 but just by nature is conservative and humble and you know so it's just on a case-by-case thing but anyway the point is buyer beware I, I think is what we're talking about what are a couple few things you would have done differently you know in what you've done so far and specifically in multifamily I'd have gotten into it sooner <laughs> so yeah it's one of those things where I started seeing the market shift starting in 2010, 11, 12, and I should have started getting out and into the real estate market at that time. I wish I'd gotten to it a little bit sooner, but I've got but some of my adult children are partnered up with me on stuff. So I'm paying it forward there and creating a legacy for them to carry on to. What are you doing in vineyards or what have you done in vineyards and what what does that look like? What's that opportunity? Is that as crowded as multifamily or not really sort of uh, interesting thing, the even way even I really got into them was uh, I own a ranch and I was looking at putting a small vineyard on the ranch, mainly just to help offset the cost of owning a ranch. But I didn't know a whole lot about it, but found it interesting. So on one podcast I'd done, the guy asked me at the end, what do you do for hobbies and stuff? I said, well, you know, I'm a rancher. Plus, you know, I'm looking at doing some vineyard stuff. And so that one comment uh, was heard by another guy who happened to do some small real estate syndications, but um, was mainly done some vineyard, had done a vineyard up in the high plains of Texas. So he heard my comment and got a hold of me and said, Hey, I want to talk to you about vineyards. And he gave me his background. I said, Well, wow, you know everything about him. I don't know a lot about all of any of it. But uh, in fact, I don't even drink that much wine. So <laughs> I said, You can educate me. He goes, Well, it's something we can syndicate. 
because there's a business model there. Essentially, we came together. He's the operator side. He's got all the experience and I'm the syndicator side and to raise the money and uh, got to my attorney. He said, yeah, you can syndicate anything. So we syndicated an agricultural syndication and doing it mainly, you know, I'm a grape farmer now. So <laughs> that's how it all worked out. Yeah. And we just uh, did our first, we call them blocks. It's about 320 acres up there in the high plains. And, and this is, you'll get this. This is funny. So the high plains of Texas up there near Lubbock is a designated, AV, what they call an AVA, American Viticultural Area. So it's an area that's prime for growing grapes. Just so happens to be up there the same place I have all my multifamily. So <laughs> location-wise, it works pretty good. It's not a crowded market because there's a lot of demand for Texas grapes for to make Texas wine. Uh, there's not enough supply. So that's one reason we're getting into it. But it's a totally different deal from the standpoint of multifamily. It's a lot longer payout. And it, and it takes a lot of cash. We're, we're probably going to be spending over $7 million developing this block. And you really don't see any dime back until five years. So most investors are not that key on it. So it takes a certain investor that has a longer forecast as far as what they're going to do. But then it's a lot longer, you know, hold on this. This is a legacy, true legacy play, something to pass on to family members, you know, and that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing. So because those vineyards have a long, you know, 30 year hit or 30 year, you know, life uh, or longer once you start reaping planning some of them, but it's a lot longer strategy, I guess is what I'd say. But most people, the financial barrier is pretty huge, as I mentioned. Another barrier would be, you know, just finding the operator, which I found, you know, it's a guy that specializes in this and he does, I wouldn't attempt to do this any more than I would attempt to buy a multifamily real estate if I didn't know how to hire the person to operate it or manage it. That That's a key component uh, in doing it. It sounds like actually a great opportunity, but like you said, it's it's a long game family legacy that you turn over to your kids. But I could see would it be a home run over time. Tracy, how would one get a hold of you and you know kind of engage with you and start a relationship? Uh, well, my website is uh, hubbardcapitalgroup.com and my email address is Tracy T R A C Y. There's no e in it at hubbardcapitalgroup.com. Feel free to email me and reach out to me. I'll talk to you about multifamily or agricultural syndications or or anything. Got it. Or anything. All righty. It has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I have untold amount of respect for the fact that you got into this business at the age that you and I are at. I, I don't know if I have the courage that you have. So, uh, well, very much. It's got to keep marching forward, man. You just got to keep moving. Everybody says, you get ready to retire. I'm going, that's not in my vocabulary. So <laughs> just keep right on going. I got it. Well, man, have a great holiday season. And I very much appreciate the time. Thank you, Roger. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>